Hi everybody and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. This week I've got a lot of news to share from VMworld, some InfoSec related content, and more. But before I get into that, I'm happy to announce some news pertaining to this very podcast. I'm delighted to welcome Liquidware as a sponsor. I recently started to incur costs related to this podcast. With the monetary costs, time spent each week producing the episodes, and the fact we recently welcomed my daughter into the world, things were quickly coming to a head. It's not an exaggeration when I tell you that without sponsorship, the podcast would not continue. So if you enjoy the show each week, you can thank Liquidware for keeping this alive. I hope to welcome another sponsor soon. With some investment, I'd like to upgrade some of my equipment and possibly try to grow the podcast. Thank you all for your continued support. It should be interesting to follow how things progress from here. Now on to some news. Let's start with some of the highlights from VMworld, which was held in Vegas this week. First up, Project Dimensions. Project Dimensions is a VMware cloud service, which essentially manages your edge computing resources in a cloud-like fashion. As edge computing resources can be expensive, it deters organizations from entertaining it for many of their needs that it could bring great value to. With Project Dimension, you effectively turn your edge computing resources into a cloud service that you can consume only when needed in an elastic cloud-like fashion. On the topic of edge computing in relation to VMworld announcements, also announced was ESXi support on ARM 64-bit platforms with part of the pitch geared toward its advantages in use for edge computing. For you storage folks out there, vSAN version 6.7 update 1 is now available with improved capacity reporting, sizing tools, a driver and firmware update manager, and streamlining of HCI adoption as well as some improved operations. vSAN is now also able to consume AWS Elastic Block Store, or EBS, rather than physical devices, meaning customers will be able to scale storage independent of compute. And as you might expect with cloud storage, you could scale this elastically as needed and pretty much to whatever scale you can afford. And keeping with an Amazon AWS topic, Amazon Relational Database Service on VMware was also announced. Amazon RDS on VMware is a service that will make it easy for customers to set up, operate, and scale databases in VMware-based software-defined data centers and hybrid environments to migrate them to AWS or VMware Cloud on AWS. Amazon RDS on VMware automates database management regardless of where the database is deployed, freeing up customers of VMware and AWS to focus on developing and tuning their applications. This will become available in the coming months Amazon RDS on VMware will support Microsoft SQL Server, Oracle, PostgreSQL, MySQL, and MariaDB databases. In my opinion, this is one of the most significant announcements from all of VMworld. The significance of this is that seemingly Amazon has chosen VMware as its partner to climb into the on-premises data centers. This could be a pretty big development. This week, VMware also announced they are to acquire Cloud Health. The acquisition is believed to be valued at $500 million. Cloud Health provide a platform which makes it possible for enterprises to control and analyze the costs, compliance, and performance of their computing environments across their own data centers and public clouds like AWS and Microsoft's Azure. With Insight, you can optimize how you consume your cloud resources, particularly, and probably most importantly, as stated, you get 
a single view of your on-premises resources and multi-cloud. A couple of quick hits, VMware Cloud Automation Services is now generally available as well as vRealize Operations or vOps as most people know it. Uh, version 7.0 of that is generally available. An announcement that got some applause during the keynote is that vSphere Platinum now has app defense built in. And also for overall security, adaptive micro-segmentation, NSX Firewall, App Defense, and vSphere are being brought together to work together and give an overall security offering. Dell were also on hand as part of the keynote, highlighting integration of some of the Dell provisioning tools to help deliver VMware's Workspace ONE to devices lickety split. My fellow CTP and EUC champion Eduardo noted that during one of the keynotes, VMware talked about available industry baselines for Windows 10 that could be applied through Workspace ONE. These baselines depend on the, the industry you happen to work within or compliance. If you're a fan of the podcast, I featured this previously and it is something which is pretty much universal for us IT pros. VMware have put in some great work for devising these industry baselines for Windows 10 and they could benefit anyone, not just Workspace ONE customers. At the event, VMware also highlighted Workspace ONE Intelligence, which branches out into many different features and capabilities, like assisting with application compatibility testing and real-time vulnerability remediation. From what I could see on Twitter, it seems during the keynote they demoed detection of a vulnerability and auto-installed a patch based on a flag set by that organization. So for example, your infosec is down your hallway with their hair on fire about a vulnerability and tell you that you have to drop everything and patch all the systems right now. Today, thanks to this feature, it could be as simple as setting a rule to say, hey, address this vulnerability, it'll go find the patch and install on any managed systems that are vulnerable and mitigate. Workspace ONE provides device support and seamless integration options for a large number of devices on many different operating systems, including iOS, macOS, Android, Chrome OS, and even support for Google Glass Enterprise, to name but a few. So they're covering a very broad spectrum of offering systems and devices. Also interesting is the fact that Okta integration was demoed. So Okta obviously have a pretty big stake in terms of their product for SSO capabilities. And you would think they'd be a competitor to the likes of Citrix Workspace or indeed VMware Workspace ONE, but it seems like VMware are welcoming them into the fold and embracing just integrating together, which I thought was pretty interesting. VMware Workspace ONE will also encapsulate MDM for physical devices along with virtual apps and desktops presented through a modern workspace. So it's pretty interesting to think about these workspace offerings and what they could mean for people who are you know, on their own devices or remote or using a mobile device. There's the ability to give a more aggregated MDM solution, possibly having a light set of rules for certain use cases. And maybe if it's a corporate owned device that you have full control over, you could control it uh, much more restrictively and significantly. Horizon on-premises and Horizon Cloud can now be integrated on a single visualization plane. This integration is done through a cloud connector service that bridges the different environments together. And that will obviously have a lot of play if, say, today you have all your load for Horizon on-premises, which I think most people do because the cost of running the actual end-user load, the desktops in the cloud, is still quite expensive. Well, you might entertain 
having some cloud resources sitting idle just in case of a DR. You could just DR to the cloud. Well, you can still see and manage those all together within a single pane of glass. Now, some of the key drivers of Workspace ONE is its intelligence that I talked about and the ability to integrate many available apps into a seamless user experience, unlike that you would even get on a traditional device. There are more integrations coming from VMware and Dell. I mentioned Dell being part of the keynote with Dell provisioning experience. Well, Dell Factory is working with Workspace ONE to take a machine out of the box to be productive in minutes with Workspace ONE. And this service will deploy on Workspace ONE image at the factory and can be integrated to ensure that only trusted sources can deploy applications to the workstation. You can also re-image a computer on demand. Eduardo was kind enough to share a QR code that was part of the keynote for anyone who would like to maybe test drive Workspace ONE for yourself or some of the different VMware tools like VMware Boxer and AirWatch. I'll share a link to that with this episode, which is episode 35 on 5bytespodcast.com. Just look under resource links or indeed in the YouTube description with this episode. Big thanks to my buddies Eduardo and also Dane Young for their tweets and also their live blog posts, which were a great help for those of us who couldn't be there in person. In some other news, ThinScale's Thin Kiosk version 5.2 launched this week. Thin Kiosk is a great product for giving your old fat clients new life as Windows-based kiosks. ThinScale have built up a ridiculously feature-rich offering, and with 5.2, they offer even more new features, including USB device blocking to secure against the many threats to your organization that USB devices can bring, application execution prevention, which allows you to create rules to prevent the execution of unsigned, untrusted applications. In instances where you want people on your kiosk to, say, just launch published applications or virtual desktops, you may just want to prevent execution of all apps other than those published. With this capability, this feature, you can do that very easily. Also introduced is DPI scaling support in Display Applet, full support for UWP applications, so they had experimental support before now, but now there's full support. There's an enhanced taskbar experience and an updated management platform featuring some drag and drop capabilities and other enhancements. For a full list, check out the release notes for version 5.2 on their site. Lakeside SysTrack version 8.4 was released. And Lakeside and Tal Klein, who's awesome by the way and has a really great book called The Escrow Punch. But they were in VMworld this week too as they announced Lakeside SysTrack version 8.4. 8.4 features expanded data ingestion sources as well as new capabilities and resources that combine the already broad end user computing data set with powerful artificial intelligence functionality helping IT teams implement level zero as they call it. If you're not familiar with SysTrack, I have a blog about it on Rorymon.com. The amount of data and the dashboards that they have in the tool, I mean the data and the dashboards are invaluable, don't get me wrong, but it's almost overwhelming. There's just so much to consume. They've also got a lot of different templates for different type, types of projects. So if you're migrating between versions of SCCM, there's templates to gather data that would be pertinent to that. If you're migrating from one desktop OS to another, there's a template for that. They could do some application compatibility analysis, such as if an application will work with AppV or not. Uh, I get into a lot of different use cases with their tool on Rorymon.com, so check that out if you're interested to find out more. 
Also, if you want to find out more about version 8.4, check that out on lakesidesoftware.com. And it's pretty interesting that a lot of these vendors are very quickly trying to adopt these artificial intelligence and machine learning type capabilities into their tools and these um, advanced analytics. Us IT pros are going to have some really crazy capabilities in the near future with all our tooling. Unfortunately, it wasn't all good news out of Vegas this week. iGel were holding an event called Disrupt close to the convention center. In hindsight, the naming may have been a bad omen as the forum was abruptly shut down on Tuesday during a lunchtime event for VIPs. Their branding, signs, and banners were taken down, electrical equipment removed, and they were told to leave. IGEL have already filed a lawsuit according to a report by the Register requesting $3 million in compensation plus $360,000 in costs. IGEL do a lot to support the community, so this is pretty disgusting to me. As somebody who has also arranged events in the past, I can only imagine how infuriating this must be to the company. If a venue cancels a couple of months ahead of an event, it's frustrating, but canceling during an event is just disgusting. Of course, there are two sides to every story, but I do hope that justice prevails and IGEL are at least compensated adequately for the BS they have endured. If you listen to the podcast in the last couple of weeks, you'll have heard me talk about the new Spectre variants, and I mentioned the patches available. Unfortunately, bleepingcomputer.com are reporting this week that the patch, which should only apply to those using Intel processors, has been seen in the wild getting applied on machines that use AMD processors. Some of those with Intel processors have also reported issues booting after the patch is installed on Windows 10 and Server 2016. It's interesting, when I first saw this article, it seemed to only apply to Windows 10, but now the article is updated to also show Server 2016. It's also reported that the issues appear to be on machines with Xeon processors, and there's Reddit posts with info on how to remove the patch if you encounter issues booting. Obviously, these processors are quite old, so chances of them being on your servers, hopefully for you, uh, are pretty slim. I would imagine if you're on server 2016, you're a little more ahead of the curve than most, so you probably don't have such old processors. But it's possible that you may have Xeon processors out there for your Windows 10 desktops. Thanks to my colleague Greg for sharing this Tech Republic article with me, which details a zero-day vulnerability in Windows Task Scheduler which could be used to execute code in system context, which of course could do a lot of damage. The Register originally reported the story and included a since-deleted tweet by at SandboxEscaper stating, here's the ALPC bug as zero day. I don't effing care about life anymore, neither do I ever again want to submit to Microsoft anyway. F all of this shit. Seems a bit dramatic. I hope whoever that is isn't going through anything too major and it was just like them having a moment. I'm sorry to laugh. I probably shouldn't have laughed during that. But back to the story, Microsoft later confirmed the vulnerability and have said they will patch all affected systems as soon as possible. So there's no patch out there right now. And it has been confirmed that a fully patched Windows 10 64-bit system is vulnerable. So I'd imagine we got to look out for a patch coming in the next couple weeks, likely in September. Windows users aren't having all of the fun, however, as again bleepingcomputer.com has this week reported on an Android vulnerability which exposes a user's device info including Wi-Fi network name, Wi-Fi BSS ID, local IP address, DNS server, and the device's MAC address. It's reported that 
all versions of Android are affected, including forks like Amazon Fire OS on their Kindle devices. It appears Google have only opted to fix in newer versions of the operating system, version 9 and newer. Personally, I think this one is a little less severe. Somebody could possibly track you down to your location, but it's certainly not as bad as being able to run malicious code in system context, like that Windows vulnerability, or even holes in the disk encryption, such as the one of the Mac OS vulnerabilities earlier this year. Now, of course, most of these vulnerabilities, and most that I highlight on the show, can only be exploited by infiltrating your network and getting into your systems. Frequent patching and security layers built up can help keep you protected. Citrix Virtual Apps and Desktop version 7.18.08 has been released. What's that you say? You may or may not have noticed during Citrix Synergy, Citrix subtly referred to their products without the well-known Zen names. It appears the naming and branding changes have now come into effect. This has been evident over the last week or so on Citrix.com when you log in and look at the product downloads page. You may also notice 7.18.08 is following a version format which is becoming much more widely adopted with organizations releasing in a more rapid release cycle. There is a lot of info to this release and rather than go off of the official release notes for this, I'd like to point out my fellow CTP Thomas Poppegaard's site, poppegaard.com for a full list, but some of the highlights for me include Windows Server 2019 support, Sharefile SSO feature within the VDA, and also as reported on previous episodes of the podcast and by Eric from zenapplog.com, the newest version of the Citrix infrastructure components can be installed on Server Core, which significantly reduces overall footprint in your data center, and that applies to this version. ServerOS VDA now supports NVIDIA NVENC video encoding, It appears VDA install options feature more than just master image creation options. Options include for remote PC access, MCS third-party provisioning tools, and broker connections. The wider range of options here may be a nod to Citrix endpoint management inclusion or vision within the VDA. Also contained is an option to limit the number of applications per machine with this version, not just the delivery group. There's a lot more info that you could check out on poppagard.com. SmartScale has now been deprecated, and also something I did find very interesting is that the Internet Explorer 11 web content redirection has also now been deprecated. This is a shame, as I know me and a few others were hoping that this feature would be improved rather than deprecated, but I guess with the move toward the Workspace app, maybe they don't see the value in investing further development into it, as they could redirect some more sites, um, SaaS-based web apps, down to the client side. But it is a feature that is still relatively new, so it's a shame it's being deprecated so quickly. That's it for the news. Now on to this week's hot job. Steve Wilson from Citrix put out the call to find a director of product design for Citrix Analytics Technologies. Steve states it's one of the coolest jobs in the world. The successful candidate will bring a strong design background with 10 plus years of experience in software user experience design, team leadership experience, an open personality and a desire to work with a diverse team with diverse opinions, experience designing user experiences that display complex information, experience with IT admin products, and also previous experience with AI and machine learning is desired but not required. The job is based out of their office in Santa Clara, California. And now for this episode, scripts, tricks, and tips. 
So rather than featuring a very in-depth technical article or script or tool this week, I thought I'd give something a little more high-level. Microsoft's App Compact guy, Chris Jackson, who is the number one source for info on remediating App Compact issues when migrating to Vista or Windows 7, posted an interesting article this week with some tips for those facing App Compact challenges with their Windows 10 migration. It's a pretty non-technical article that goes through what your first step should be. These include to check for the latest version of the app, improve your web search mojo, and Chris actually shares a query format that works pretty well to get this info, which I thought was pretty interesting as well as some Microsoft KBs that could prove fruitful for info. And of course, he also suggests to work with the vendor. He states many customers go to Microsoft first, and it's usually best to go and start with the vendor. And by the way, if you are about to embark on a Windows 10 migration, as Chris states, you'll hopefully notice that it's less painful than when going from Win 7 to Win 10 than it was from XP to Win 7 or Vista. Now I will add my own little two cents in there. If today on Windows 7, your users are using like Internet Explorer 9 or 8 or an older version, you're going to have to migrate them over to at least Internet Explorer 11 now, which can be challenging. Uh, enterprise mode can be pretty useful for most sites, but not for all of them. Uh, I blogged about some of those challenges and some of the workarounds on RoryMon.com. If during your Windows 7 migration, you chose not to standardize across on 64-bit operating systems for all. This might be the time you want to do it because obviously hardware is now getting more memory that you may want your users to be able to consume, which they may not be able to do or definitely cannot do on a 32-bit system. And if you haven't faced the challenges getting those old, I don't know, 16-bit apps reworked or a new version of them yet, that could become a problem if you're standing standardizing on 64-bit. I posted a lot of articles on AppCompat and Win7 migrations on RoryMon.com. For example, using the act, act collectors to gather a reflective app inventory for your organization. Now this is the old way of doing it, but now Microsoft have a tool called Upgrade Readiness, which can give you a lot of that info. I also have info on Lakeside SysTrack, a product I mentioned in the news. Uh, and as well as a product called Migration Studio, which are great tools for helping keep your migration on track. Most of my app compat articles are actually still relevant, and I hope to post a new one pretty soon that's more Win 10 focused. My original intention with this podcast was to keep the episodes pretty short and concise, and in the beginning, for the first few months, I definitely did do that. Now, since May, the episodes have been getting a bit longer, um, a lot longer in some cases. And part of the reason for that is most tech vendors have their conferences during the summer and it's very difficult to be very concise with these. I'm hoping and I'm guessing that once the summer winds down and the tech conferences aren't as frequent anymore, the podcast will go back to being pretty concise. And with that, that's it for another episode. As always, thanks so much for listening.